Hello and welcome to Equity Investing for Inflation, a podcast brought to you by CityWire in association with River and Mercantile. My name is Amy Maxwell and I'm the Managing Editor of CityWire Engage. And for this discussion today, I'm joined by James Sim, Head of European Equities at River and Mercantile. Today, inflation is on the agenda. It's been absent for decades, but James is here to tell us why its return could be a significant theme in financial markets this year. Welcome, James. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Amy. Okay, now, James, I'm going to alert our listeners up front that you've penned quite a weighty paper on the topic of inflation. It's a great read full of really relatable examples. So I would encourage those eager to explore the topic in more detail to click on the show notes of this episode for the link. So now let's begin by assessing where we are now and how we got here. One particular chart you sent over to me in the prep had a pretty stunning statistic in it. The chart I'm referring to is called a history of interest rates. Could you begin by talking our listeners through this chart? Yes, it's a super interesting. I think it's the Bank of England that produces it. It's an amazing chart. I'm not quite sure how they forecast what interest rates were at the time of Christ or even in the Egyptians. But anyway, and what what it shows obviously is that uh, we've never been as low as we are. Now, obviously the last 10 years has been exceptional in some ways. We've had a big increase in debt. We've had um, strong demographic trends and we've had technological shift. So I think all of those things have conspired in a way, as well as a kind of narrative that um, we're in this lower for longer world forever. And I guess what I'm saying is that although I, like no one else, really knows what the mechanisms are. I think there are some reasons to think that that might be different um, going forward, or at least some of those elements of that have, have are likely to wane and that we could be in for a much more inflationary, certainly reflationary in the short term and inflationary in the longer term um, environment. And then that's obviously got very big investment implications. And do you think investors today are prepared for those very big implications, as you suggest. The short-term answer to that, I mean, is no. Um, if you look at most portfolios, they're they're pretty full of growth stocks, which are typically you would expect to suffer in a in a rising interest rate environment. Um, it's not really about value versus growth, though. Um, I mean, that's a debate that that may come into it. What what I'm more interested in, really, for the for the medium term, is if we go back to an inflationary environment, you know, and I'm at if not. When so, but if that happens, what sort of characteristics do we want our companies to display, and therefore what should we should we be investing in? And, and that's a lot of what we've written about in the piece. And can you give us a taste then of what investors and and what you yourself are looking for? Yeah, so I, the, the sort of three things that we highlighted might be worth looking for. Um, so the first one is uh, quite straightforward, probably the least controversial, and that's duration. The price of duration has never been so high. Um, and so as you get a rising interest rate environment, those long dated cash flows that exist in a growth stock um, are, are potentially vulnerable. So one thing people often point to is pricing power. Now, it's interesting that because pricing power really denotes quality, a quality investment business. And we know that as well as growth stocks doing very well, quality stocks have done very well. So high return businesses have done incredibly well. One thing I'm thinking about is, well, does that pricing power exist per se? Or does do you have pricing power, different pricing powers for different companies in low inflation environments and high inflation environments? 
So the example I've used is with Unilever. And what I'm basically showing is that if the price of milk as a commodity is going up 5% a year, it's, the price of milk has basically been flat for 20 years. But the price of a Magnum ice cream has gone up 3 or 4%. And so the price of that ice cream has gone from whatever, a pound or so um, 20 years ago to uh, £2.50 today. Now, if I say milk is going up at 5% a year, so therefore the price of my Magnum has to go up 8 to 9% a year to maintain that gap, then your Magnum ice cream is going to end up costing 24 quid in 20 years' time, which just seems very implausible. So... I think a lot of companies that have had pricing power, what looks like pricing power with low inflation, may struggle in a higher inflation environment. And then the third, you've got duration, pricing power, and there was a third? Quality, high return on investment, um, is, a, is, a, is a characteristic that's been hugely rewarded by the stock market over the last 10 years in particular. And so companies have really sought to display that characteristic which effectively means they haven't invested a lot of them. In fact, if you look at capex to sales ratios, they've gone down very significantly over the last cycle. Even though there's been ample capital to deploy, right. cheap capital to yeah, deploy yeah. for capex. So, so that's the super interesting thing because this whole like idea of zero and negative rates was to try and one of the reasons to do it was to try and stimulate demand and you know it's just just hasn't worked empirically we can observe that don't necessarily know why it just hasn't um so when companies want to display that characteristic obviously they move to a capital light business model and you can see how much that's outperformed now if we get inflation starting to pick up a little bit then what you actually want is a capital intense business so so i think you want to look for well invested capital businesses that have some pricing power and aren't ridiculously valued so it's much more complicated than just value versus growth it's really to do with the fundamental structure of companies profit and loss accounts and cash flows and is that a relatively large hunting ground or or is it slim pickings what, yeah, well, what's your experience there? i mean i mean f- frankly it's 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 very difficult right because clearly if you're a company that's going to have pricing power going forward and you've got a very well invested capital base you might well be highly valued um you know one of the companies i own is 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 asml which actually kind of an archetypal growth stock uh it's on about 35 40 times earnings um but it but it it absolutely is probably the best company in europe relating to those other two parameters so which becomes more important you know who knows um, unfortunately, there's no answer sheet here. And this goes back to your, your point around uh, it's been 40 years since we really saw higher inflation. And therefore, you know, there aren't many fund managers who, are, who have lived through that kind of period. Um, we, we're sort of back to first principles. But I think one thing I'd really highlight is the importance of, of pragmatism in this kind of environment. You know, uh, as an industry, we've become very dogmatic between actually between value and growth. Um, and I suppose, you know, when I started the pragmatic fund manager who was able to bring some balance to the discussion um, w- was was well rewarded and wouldn't be surprised, I suppose, if we went back to that kind of environment. Okay. And um, let, let's talk a little bit about some of the timeframes that you're, that you're envisaging here because do, are you sensing there is an inflationary shock on the horizon, or is this a, a more gradual thing that investors have time to prepare for? 
I think the probability of higher inflation in the short term is extremely high. Um, you know, 80%, 90%, I don't know, but it's, it's highly likely. And the central banks are aware of that and they, they keep saying it's transient. And one of my colleagues uh, quite likes the quote from David Einhorn that says, when inflation comes, inflation, of course, normally hurts the people that underestimate it, not the people that overestimate it. But when inflation comes, it doesn't come waving a little flag saying transient. Uh, it, it starts off looking transient and then becomes more embedded. So, so that's, but that's really the debate, the investment debate that sort of clients need to have with themselves is if it's transient. Now, I believe that there's a tradable opportunity there as we reflate the economy. I still find many companies in Europe that are very depressed. Um, you know, Santander, which we own in the portfolio, it's on 0.7 times book value for, for 10% return on equity. You know, that's a very, very attractive combination. Um, and if inflationary pressures come back in and the yield curve starts to steepen, they're going to make even more money than they are today. So um, it, it, that, that, that's a very tradable opportunity, if you like, this short-term inflationary shock. I think what's much more up for grabs is when you come in every year and those quality growth stocks, well, funds that own quality growth, Every year, they're behind the index by two, three, four, five percent, and it happens for a decade. And that's the environment that you had in the seventies, of course, um, after the Nifty Fifty. So the Nifty Fifty, which is, I guess, like Nestle or Unilever today, in the sixties built up this huge premiumization, premium valuation, basically based on the idea that they could sell globally. They were sleep at night stocks, right? IBM, no one, there was the phrase, no one ever got fired for buying IBM. Um, and uh, that, 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 that phrase was coined just before it went on to underperform for a decade. And uh, that's because what we had is a total investment regime shift. One of my, one of my investment kind of heroes, one of the people I look up to is, is Ray Dalio, uh, given he's made more billions of pounds of alpha for his clients than anyone else ever. I think that's probably not a bad person to look up to. And um, one of his kind of fundamental investment principles is to identify how the investment regime you're in is unsustainable and then identify how it might change. And I think what we can definitely identify is that the current investment regime that's pertained over the last decade is clearly unsustainable. So we talked there about a sort of total investment regime shift. Well, that's, that's Ray Dalio's kind of phrasing there. But Investors really do need to, what you're saying is investors really do need to have some serious conversations with um, their clients and, and with, with their management teams about kind of the style in which they're investing and how sustainable that is. Can we get a little bit more into the detail of which sectors you believe are vulnerable to this shift and, and, and where um, conversely there are some opportunities? You know, as a European equity investor, one one. Uh, sort of free lunch over the last 15, 20 years has been uh, to be underweight banks. Um, most people have been, and it's been a very profitable trade. Uh, I think in the short term, they, 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 there's opportunities. Whether that turns into a long-term opportunity, you know, I'm, I'm less certain. Um, so I, I mentioned capital-intense businesses. I think there's loads of actually quite consolidated industries now. And they've become consolidated because a lot of people have left. That... If we do get this regime shift, are going to become very profitable. So one I'd highlight would be the pulp and paper industry. Um, now, over the last twenty or thirty years, 
that's been a tough environment because we've all been using less paper because uh, the computer and then the iPad has been invented and then the iPhone. I must say this wasn't the one I was I was envisioning would be the opportunity of, <laughs> of, of, of the century. <laughs> an, obvious, an obvious opportunity, but carry on. But if, if you think about the characteristics of, of, of what a, a pulp, a vertically integrated pulp business is, effectively it's a mine that grows, right? That's what a forest is. And then it takes that wood, whose cost hasn't changed very much in this inflationary environment. It's just still growing away. 4% a year is what they grow out roughly. And then it puts it through its pulp machinery and then it creates paper. Now, paper's been declining, as, as you know. I think it's about to start growing because it can replace plastic for a lot of packaging. And we're all doing a lot of online shopping. But, you know, even in, 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 in globally, s still 90% of shopping is done offline on the high street and when you do online shopping as we all know as we're filling up our recycling bins through covid uh there's a big increase in the amount of paper you consume so that's a an example sector we we own some stocks that are exposed to that so, so that's pulp and paper but you could also look at some of the chemicals industries as well invested sunk capital bases you could look at lots of industrial companies we've got lots of industrial companies in the portfolio that we think will benefit um, but actually, it's not so much about individual uh, sectors. It's more about the companies and how they might um, change over the next 10 years if the envir investment environment changes. And as I say, we're not, we're not necessarily all in on this bet, but it's certainly something that we should be incorporating into our, all our portfolios, I believe. Are, are the companies you're investing in giving you signals that inflation is returning? One of the reasons I can be so confident that inflation is coming back in the short term is because so many of the companies I'm speaking to are seeing their costs going up. Now, that can be positive or it can be negative for companies. But the surprising thing for me is how many companies say our costs are going up, but we're able to pass on that to our customers. And obviously, when your prices are going up, that ultimately, that is inflation. By definition, that's what it is. Um, a, a great example of that, one of, the, one of my stocks so over the long term I'm quite excited about is called um, Axel, which is an electric bike manufacturer, biggest electric bike manufacturer in Europe. They own Rally and a bunch of other brands. Um, I was a, an early adopter, so I, I, I do confess an element of bias here. But um, th they cannot grow because they can't get enough components from Shimano. They can't get enough gears and brakes. So they, they, their growth rate is capped effectively. Now, that means that they're basically putting their prices up for all these electric bikes. If, if you're lucky enough to get one, you're going to have to pay a premium for it. So why is there, why is there a shortage from Shimano? Because there's been a boom in people using electric bikes through lockdown. And they can't keep up with the demand. And they can't keep up with the demand. And these supply constraints I'm seeing pop up all over the place. Because they haven't invested their capex. Because they haven't been investing for a very long time. Uh, now, they're saying to Shimano, come on, guys, like build another line in your factory for more gears. And Shimano have been so far dragging their heels and saying, well, we don't know if it's a short-term blip because of COVID or whether it's a, actually a long-term trend. Um, no, I think it will be a long-term trend. And what happens next? So that's, that's how we know that there's a, there's a short-term spike in inflation because so many companies are telling us they're putting out their prices. If we start to see... Um, and we are starting to see. But if we start to see lots of companies saying we're going to actually expand our capacity, then that creates this self-fulfilling virtuous circle, escape velocity, 
we talked about in 2011, I remember it vividly, the US achieved escape velocity because it went into a self-fulfilling virtuous circle of, of investment. And I think if that happens, and as that happens across more and more industries, then obviously that creates more and more demand and then more and more companies have to invest, which creates more and more demand. And that's the virtuous circle. And once that's out of the bag with the current um, pent up demand we have both from governments, from consumer in the short term, but governments longer term as they do more and more fiscal stimulus. Um, and as interest rates are kept low and, and capital rates, are, cost of capital is kept low by policymakers, which it will be, that's when you start to see this investment regime shift into a more reflationary and then inflationary environment. And that's going to be good for your electric bike manufacturer? It'll be good for companies like Beliden, which is a, a commodity miner, the world's uh, most sustainable copper miner, AAA rated by MSCI, if, if that's important to you, um, which without whom we will not be generating enough of the commodities we need to undergo the energy transition, which in itself, by the way, is very inflationary. To build a whole new energy industry based on renewable energy, which I think is an amazing thing that we're going to do as a society over the next 20 years. And of course, as a father of th three small boys, like very excited about, you know, the sustainability aspect. Um, but that that is, you know, in itself very inflationary because it's creating a huge amount of additional and demand. You know, we've talked about total investment regime shift. This is total energy re regime mm. shift mm. alongside it, which you know, is is another ingredient or another reason to, to really be looking at, at the inflation complex a lot more seriously than potentially investors have been doing. Mm, I think so. And as an aside, by the way, a lot of people, uh, you know, we, we've all worked out that this is a big investment um, theme. Um, most of it is expressed in portfolios through very highly valued growth assets, um, and, and we have some, don't get me wrong, you know, um, like carbon capture is a long duration asset that we own that's the world's best hope to abate all its uh, emissions from the cement and steel industries. Um, but there is also many legacy businesses that display those inflation protection characteristics, by the way, that will also benefit from energy transition. And those are, as somebody who's always had valuation discipline kind of at the heart of what I do, those are the exciting ones to me. So we, you talked there about ESG and this this rehabilitation, <laughs> plenty yeah. of opportunity in um, in rehabilitation. We hear a lot about inequality and mm. it is that deflationary environment that has exacerbated that, hasn't mm. it? So do you think a return of inflation could cure some of those ills that we have seen and that have um, resulted in, in the Trump? of this world and, and, and of Brexit. Is there some healing? Mm. <laughs> Rehabilitation and healing <laughs> to end. Um, well, Janet Yellen thinks so. Um, you know, that's one of the reasons they think they want to let inflation run above, uh, above its um, target level for some time. Um, I mean, I just point out, like, it's very easy sat here in our kind of financial world bubble where people are generally well paid. Like the world is bloody tough for a lot of people. And um, QE is effectively a policy designed to make rich people richer. Like explicitly, that is what it's designed to do. Because the whole way to get the interest rate down, the yield down on a bond is to push, it, push its price up. And when you push the price of an asset up, guess what? Whoever's got the assets gets richer. 
Um, and you can pull up any chart of capital versus labor as a percentage of GDP. It's a one-way story for the last 30 years. Now, lots of reasons for that, globalization um, of the workforce, technological shifts, the breaking of the unions in the 80s by Thatcher and Reagan. Um, so uh, lots and lots of reasons for that. Um, but the outcome has been really tough for a lot of people. And as you say, there's been basically a political reaction against it. And I think that was all, you already seen the winds of change pre-COVID. And the policy response to COVID is literally just, you know, it's not even fuel on the fire. It's like napalm on the bonfire. I mean, it's so big uh, relative to anything that we'd have expected um, two or three years ago. Most professional economists, most investors would say, well, quite a high risk of runaway inflation. And of course, the opposite's happened. And that investment insight a decade ago would have been insanely profitable. It was the, the only call you needed to make. Now, I don't know whether the insight today is that all these winds of change, these shifts that you're talking about, that we're talking about here, are going to create the same kind of regime or totally the opposite regime, to be honest. But the potential is there for that insight to create an incredibly profitable investment um, shift, an investment um, decision. Um, and I think that's what I think clients, I think that's what we should all, as an industry that's supposed to be protecting people's capital and helping them grow it, as an industry, that's what we really need to debate and ensure that our clients are going to benefit from that changing regime. Well, James, it's certainly, for me, been a fascinating discussion. I know we've only scratched the surface here, um, and there's a great deal of food for thought for our listeners. And I urge listeners, those of you who, who want to delve into the detail, do refer back to James's inflation report, which is linked into the show notes. But for now, that's all we've got time for. Thank you, James. Thanks, Amy. Really enjoyed that. That's great. <laughs>